every uh, six or eight weeks here at The Story, we sort of reset and we start a new series of conversations. And a couple of weeks ago, we started a brand new series called Keep Jesus Weird. And um, we stole the phrase from Austin, but don't, don't tell them, uh, please don't tell them, because they're so pretentious about how original they are. And they didn't even make it up. They stole it from Portland. Keep Portland weird predates Keep Austin weird. So it's not even theirs <laughs> to begin with, but we're, we're stealing it from somebody. And we like the idea of Jesus uh, as a, a weird, abnormal, not a status quo kind of leader and savior. Um, and that's certainly what the first Christians believed about Jesus. And that's why the first Christians, when you study their lives, uh, you see nothing but weirdness. Like, that's what we're doing with this series is we're looking at the first eight chapters of this book called Acts, which is the book in the Bible that, that outlines in vivid detail the lives of the first Christians. And y'all, the lives of the first Christians were nothing like the lives of many Christians today. They were totally different. They could not have cared less about what the world thought of them. They could not have cared less about superficial things like success and money and stuff. Like They shared everything they had in common, and nobody among them went without. Like It was this radical community that freely gave of what they had. No government told them to be this way. They freely gave because they were set on fire by something otherworldly. They were not normal. They did crazy things. They were marked by this. They were known for being weird. And it's because they were following the man, I believe, who was the weirdest man to ever walk the face of the earth. There's nothing normal about Jesus. I mean, the things that he said and did, he threw a bunch of demons into a herd of pigs, for goodness sake. Like, he said crazy sounding things. Like, you know, uh, love your enemies, and you're blessed when you're persecuted. And he said things like, hey, guys, I'm God, and they're coming to kill me. <laughs> he said things like we're used to hearing them now, and so whenever you're around a weird guy long enough, he just becomes a guy. And that's what's happening with us and Jesus. We've forgotten how weird he is. And one of the real temptations in American Christianity is to want to domesticate him, to want to take this weird figure from Scripture and make him, remake him in our image. I think if really pressed, most of us would confess that we would rather have a Jesus dressed in vineyard vines, hanging out at the club, talking about oil prices and Astros baseball, than the weird guy we find in Scripture, even though he's not even an Astros fan. Did you know that? What's his favorite team? Ah, you got it. The Angels. That's who he likes. Finally, I landed that joke. This is my fifth try. That's the first laugh, <laughs> all right? <laughs> I stuck to it, darn it. Um, <laughs> so uh, we want a normal Jesus, but the Jesus in the Bible was anything but normal. He said and did some crazy things, and I want to keep him weird. We must. If we're going to be authentically Christian and not just merely culturally Christian who do good things on Sundays and once in a while, but if we're going to be fully wholeheartedly Christian, like we've got to be weird too. And I don't think there's any better time, better day to talk about the weirdness of Jesus than on Easter. 
Because the resurrection was easily the weirdest thing that the weirdest man ever did. Nobody saw it coming. Nobody had ever predicted this. No one ever thought it would happen. We always talk about how nobody saw the, the Messiah being crucified. That's a little bit foretold in the Old Testament. You know, it's like the servant, the suffering servant, and, and that he would be, you know, uh, beaten and, and uh, wounded for, for our transgressions. And things like that are in the Old Testament pointing toward the crucifixion. Nobody saw the crucified Messiah rising from the dead in bodily form. It was wild and as radical an idea as you can imagine. And, and, and yet that is the idea that we uh, come here to celebrate today. This day is more important than Christmas. This day is more important than any other Christian holiday. If the tomb isn't empty, then Christianity is meaningless. And uh, we, we have to sort of sit with the weirdness of that idea. Now it really began this weird crusade Jesus went on, it kind of began the week earlier when he organized his own parade. Any man that organizes his own parade, it's a little, it's a little different. He organized his own parade. He had parade, uh, the, the crowds of people lining the streets, laying down their palm branches and waving their arms in the air, shouting to him, praising him as their king. And he's riding into the city of Jerusalem on the back of a donkey which is something that only kings did, except kings rode into cities on the backs of noble steeds, high and mighty, a noble steed. You know, I don't know if you've ever ridden a donkey. It's not the smoothest ride in the world. It's humiliating to ride a donkey. No one's ever looked cool on a donkey. <laughs> Can you picture it? He's weird. He's saying to the world, I'm a king, but I'm a weird king. I'm not like the other kings. And when he rides into the city of Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, that is his message. And that message goes on throughout that week. Again and again, he's asked, are you the king of the Jews? Yes, I am the king of the Jews, is his answer. And, and that's what got him killed. It wasn't his religious stuff. It wasn't his theology. It was treason. You weren't allowed to say you were the king of anything in the Roman Empire. Caesar was the only king. I mean, even the Jews. You couldn't say you're the king of the Jews. Only Caesar was king of the Jews. He worked hard for that territory. Like, he claimed it as a province. He conquered it. It belonged to Rome. He was the king. For Jesus to say he was a king was an act of sedition. And the Romans reserved their worst punishments for traitorous, treasonous, uh, men like Jesus. That's what got him beaten to a pulp with the scourge. They stripped him naked and they beat him. And then they stripped him naked again and they put him on the cross, laid bare for all the world to see, which, by the way, is how they crucified people. I know that every work of art you've ever seen depicting the crucifixion showed Jesus on the cross, beaten and bloodied, dying, but in a brand new loincloth like right out of the box, like a fresh, white, fruit of the loom, a loincloth. Listen, the Romans didn't afford their victims that luxury of a loincloth. They crucified people naked for a reason. They wanted to send a message. They wanted total humiliation. And so they hanged you there naked, exposed, vulnerable, 
for all the world to see, and they hanged you on a busy street so everybody saw. That's how Jesus died. Now, we don't like to think about it. It makes us uncomfortable. Uh, it's even too weird for artists to paint, apparently, even though artists are probably the weirdest people. Like, they can't even, they can't even take the weirdness of naked Jesus on the cross, but that's exactly the way that it um, happened. Now, there's something about um, nudity, I think, that just kind of makes us uncomfortable. One of the most common recurring nightmares, maybe some of y'all have had it, showing up someplace inappropriate, totally nude, showing up to church or <laughs> to work or to school, and you're like, <gasps> anybody, no one? You don't want to admit it, you're ashamed. 20% of adults claim to have had that nightmare at some point in their lives. But we don't really like to think about nudity. Most of us don't want to be naked in front of most people. And most of us don't want to see most people naked. <laughs> Amen? Uh, <laughs> uh, that's just the way we, we function. We don't like it. It makes us uh, queasy. Yeah, no, thank you. This week, uh, Florida prosecutors announced as part of their ongoing investigation, they will release to the public raw video footage of Patriots owner Robert Kraft committing salacious act in his birthday suit. And for the first time in the storied history of this deeply divided nation, all Americans came together in one voice to say, no, that video should never see the light of day. <laughs> Hallelujah, Christ is risen. All right, we all agree. Across the political spectrum, not even Mrs. Kraft wants to see that video. No, thank you. There's too much there. So there's too much nudity, and, and, and it unsettles us. And as unsettled as we are by nakedness, God doesn't seem to mind. He made us that way. He didn't make us with permanent clothing. He didn't make Adam and Eve and then dress them. He could have. He made Adam and Eve, and he was like, boop, go have fun. And they're like, woohoo! You know, it was like a party in the Garden of Eden for who knows how long, and they were great with it. The end of Genesis chapter 2, it ends this way with the line, they were naked and unashamed. They were cool with being naked. But then they messed up in chapter 3. And the moment they messed up, shame entered the picture. And the very moment that shame entered the picture, they couldn't be naked together anymore. Adam was like, what are those? And Eve was like, what is that? And then they start covering up. And ever since that day, people have been covering up, covering up layer upon layer. Not just our bodies, but our souls, our very selves, covering ourselves up because we're afraid of being exposed, afraid of being known. Because if we're known, they'll know our shame too. And then what? We're afraid of being rejected. And so we cover up. And nobody covers up like religious people cover up. Religious people are the best at covering up because nothing causes more shame in people than religion does. And I mean religion in a negative sense, religion in an institutional sense, religion in the way that it works over time to further someone's shame. And religion functions that way. Religion is like, you know, uh, if you act right, then God will love you. 
but nobody knows how to act right. And so we're always chasing God's love. How do we chase God's love? We give our religion more attention, more money, more affection, right? And that's the control mechanism of religion. And it causes shame to well up in people and you cover up even more. Well, Jesus was no fan of that kind of religion. Nothing angered him more than the kind of religion that layers shame onto his people. And he was no fan either of covering up. <laughs> it was uh, interesting to me this week as I studied the, the stories of Jesus in a new light. I, I went searching for all the times in scripture that Jesus was naked. And I don't know why, but it was, uh, it was just kind of a rabbit trail. We don't have a lot of the events in Jesus's life percentage-wise. Like he lived 33 years and what we know is just little vignettes here and there, right? But, but out of that, that we do know, he spent an inordinate amount of time without any clothes on. Like from what we know of his life, we know about his birth. He was born in his birthday suit like the rest of us. That's obvious. But he wasn't born with a halo or any kind of angel coverings. Like he was born like the rest of us. Eight days later, he was circumcised in the temple, naked like all the other babies. Years later, when he came to be baptized, he was baptized in the nude. Most likely, that's how baptism worked back then. In the Jewish ritual of baptism, you went down into the mikvah or into the river naked. And that's probably how Jesus was baptized. We know that he was beaten by the Romans naked with the scourge. We know that he was killed on the cross naked. If you were listening earlier to the scripture reading from the Easter story, you heard that even when he left the tomb, he left his clothes behind and he walked out of the tomb naked. And for 500 years, the first Christians, the first generations of Jesus' followers followed suit. In their birthday suits, they followed suits because the first 500 years worth of Christians who were baptized were all baptized without any clothes on. Did you know that? <laughs> For the first 500 years, everyone who was baptized was baptized all natural. Now, I don't know if they used to do it like men's ceremonies and women's ceremonies <laughs> or how it worked, but we have all kinds of evidence supporting this. I just picked one quote from a church father from the first 500 years. I could have picked any number of quotes. This is from John Chrysostom. This is from the third century uh, AD. And he's talking about baptism. He says, in the Old Testament times, baptism was slave toward master. But now, it's friend toward friend. Then there was nakedness, and now there's nakedness. But then the nakedness was a consequence of sin. Now there is no sin. Now, rather, we strip to become freed from sin. We strip. Who knew that a church father said, we strip. Uh, <laughs> we strip to become free from sin. Then Adam put off the glory that had been his. Now the Christian puts off the old man. And before he descends into the water, he puts it off just like a garment. Now, if you're new here today, and this is the first time you've ever heard me offer a message, and the first time you've ever been to the story, you might be wondering, what have I gotten myself into? And uh, can I keep my clothes on? Mm. <laughs> you can. Uh, in fact, I'm not advocating that we go back to the way things were. My son, who is nine years old, is being baptized today. You wanna keep your clothes on? Yeah? Okay. <laughs> all right, he will. He's not even sure he's going to be baptized anymore. Yeah, it's all good, Cohen. We're going to do it. Uh, we're not going back to the way that it was, but I do think we should learn from the deeper meaning and symbolism 
of that nakedness, that exposure, right? Because there was something more going on than just physical nakedness. There was a willingness among the first Christians to be known, to be vulnerable, to be forgiven, to be unashamed again. And I think we should pay attention to that as Christians. You know, whenever you uh, go into churches now, you um, oftentimes the criticism of churches will be, you know, it's boring. You're surprised if you're not bored the whole service. You're like, wake me when it's finished. Or, you know, these people look half alive, half dead. And, and, and sometimes churches can be stuffy or stodgy or judgy. Oftentimes that's people's first impression of churches. But that hasn't always been the case. In fact, the very first person to criticize Christians didn't say anything about stuffiness, stodginess, uh, judginess, anything like that. The very first criticism levied against Christians by non-Christians is in Acts chapter two, verse 13, where people observed the first church worship service going on and said, some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. This is the first time anyone criticized Christians after the resurrection. And the criticism wasn't, look how judgy they are, look how mean they are, look how exclusive they are. The first judgment was, look how much fun they're having. There's no way those people are sober. Have you ever walked into a church and said that or anything like that? <laughs> These people are having way too much fun. They've been day drinking. It's clear, like, <laughs> like uh, you know, they're singing like it's a queen concert and they're all getting along and some old lady is skinny dipping in the little pool with the preacher. Like, it's just weird, like they're drunk, right? That never happens anymore, but it used to happen. It used to happen when the Spirit set the church on fire, it happened. This was Peter's response. The Peter was the, the leader of one of the leaders of the early church, and this was his first sermon in response to that criticism of Christians being drunk. Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people aren't drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. <laughs> I love it. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. Now pay attention to this part. He has received, as, as he was resurrected, received the promised Holy Spirit and poured out what you now see and hear. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the others, what do we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of sins. That's the point. Forgiveness. Peeling back the shame. That's the point of the resurrection and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and the promises for you and your children and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. 
With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that. Excuse me. 3,000, 3,000 converts on your first sermon. Sometimes I hate Peter. (laughs) So jealous. Pastor Envy. 3,000 people got baptized, got naked, vulnerable, laid bare, and then made new. On the first day, Christianity was born. Now their nakedness was in fact symbolic of something more, those layers of shame that the Holy Spirit empowered them to peel off. They couldn't do it themselves. They needed some otherworldly power and that's what the Holy Spirit does. It empowers us to peel back the layers of our shame. And every time the first Christians got together, the New Testament says they got together and sang and worshiped and broke bread and all that, but they got together and they confessed their sins. They confessed their sin. That was an emotional, spiritual nakedness that they, uh, that, that they would expose themselves in that way to their Christian community. They confessed their sins, not to some priest in a box, but to each other. And that is to say that forgiveness is not just about you and God. Forgiveness is not just about me and God. Forgiveness is about us. Forgiveness is always about fellowship. It's always a contact sport. Forgiveness is always communal and community driven. And uh, it's always been that way because Jesus told the first Christians, in fact, uh, in John's gospel, that any sin they forgave would be forgiven, and any sin they didn't forgive would not be forgiven, which sounds a little like a power play or something, like the church is the only place you can come to be forgiven. It's not what it means. It just means forgiveness always happens in community. You know, when they um, put Jesus on that cross, and he was beaten and just humiliated and laid bare naked for all the world to see. They didn't stop there. They made a sign. And they put a sign over his head as he died on the cross. And um, the sign that they made for him said, King of the Jews. Do you think that the people that made the sign really thought he was King of the Jews? Of course not. They were making fun of him. They meant this sign for his shame and they hanged it over his head and he died under this sign. They wanted to shame him. I wanna ask you a question and I, I hope you'll take it and consider it seriously. If your worst enemies made a sign for you to hang over your head, to shame you, and accuse you, and call you out for the stuff they know about you. What would your sign say? King of what? (laughs) Maybe you would make your own sign. Maybe you're your worst enemy, and you self-destruct with regularity. What would the sign say? King of broken relationships. King of ghosting chicks on Tinder, king, I don't know, queen of, uh, you know, subpar parenting, whatever, you know, 
We make these signs for ourselves and we let them hang over our heads. I made a couple, in fact, last night just to get your wheels turning. I didn't have anything else to do on the Saturday night before Easter. So I just <laughs> made some signs. Uh, guys, what about king of repressed emotions? Guys, anyone? Guys, how you doing today? That's what I thought. Uh, <laughs> We are the kings of compartmentalization. Kings of, I'm fine. <laughs> kings of the illusion of self-sufficiency. Guys, self-sufficiency will be your end if you don't check it. Women, I'm not letting you off the hook either. What about uh, queen of crippling regret? <laughs> Any women struggle with Regrets, remorse from the past, decisions you made or decisions you wish you'd made differently. I talk to people all the time that are dealing with regrets. You can't get over it. You can't forgive yourself. And so you just live under that sign. I needed bigger ones for the next couple of signs. So I got a couple bigger pieces. What about, <clears throat> ladies, queen of, look at her in Maui with her husband and perfect kids. Why does God love her so much more than me? Why, hashtag FOMO, hashtag why God? Anybody live under this sign? You fall prey to the trap of comparison. And comparison not only steals your joy, comparison adds to your shame. And finally, guys, not to drive this home, but you need it. Guys, king of, I don't need your help. I can do this by myself. I'm a grown blank man. It's been redacted. Like the Mueller report, <laughs> because I want to keep my job. So, I don't know of any bigger problem for guys than trying to do it ourselves. I don't know of anything that threatens our souls more than trying to be our own men. I'm trying to man up, you know, be a man. Just grit your teeth, pick yourself up by the bootstraps. Don't whine, shake it off. Guys, those are lies straight from the pit of hell. Guys, you need a community, a small but faithful community of other men who are following Jesus with you, with whom you can share everything without fear of judgment, without fear of manipulation, without fear of being used against you, men who will protect you and defend you, hold you accountable if needed, but love you and forgive you. And you resist it because you're committed to covering up. You were not made to cover up. You were not made to do it alone. Men and women, you were not made to go it alone. Jesus came back from the dead and walked out of that tomb to draw us into spirit-filled, spirit-led community where forgiveness reigns, constant forgiveness. But you cannot know forgiveness unless you make your sins known. 
unless you bear your soul, unless you're willing to be vulnerable, unless you're willing to be naked together, spiritually, emotionally exposed together. Forgiveness is hard to come by. And you run the risk of doing what everyone else in this generation, this corrupt generation, as Peter would say, is doing. Hiding, hiding behind masks, hiding behind walls, hiding behind computer screens. And every time we find ourselves hiding, we're putting one more brick in these self-made prisons that isolate us from everyone else. That's not what you were made for. You were made to be known and to know others to be loved and to love others, to be forgiven and to forgive others. So to wrap up this Easter, I wanted to offer a little experience like from the first generation church. Every time we read about that, those Christians, we find that this weird phrase that whenever they gathered together, they laid hands on each other. At the high school I went to, that meant something completely different. When you lay hands on somebody, you're, <laughs> you're not getting along. But back then it meant connection. Fellowship, togetherness. And, and so I'm not gonna make this too weird, I hope, but what I want from you and need from you in the next couple of minutes is just human contact. If you would reach across and grab the hand of the person next to you, or if there's somebody in front of you and you can just consensually, I guess, touch their shoulder, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> not sure how this works anymore, but... <laughs> Uh, contact, touch, humanity is what matters. Honesty, being willing to be laid bare, sins and all, so that we can overcome this shame that has bound us, y'all. I'm gonna say a prayer, and after uh, every line or two, I'll prompt you, and I'll say, and the church says, or let the church say, and then your line is, you are forgiven, I want you to say it loud enough so the person next to you can hear it. I want them to hear you saying it. I want you to hear them saying it because it's for you too. Let's pray together. God, give us courage not just to hear about Easter but to live it, to receive the promise what Easter represents. <clears throat> it's not just religion. It's not just going to heaven one day. It's so much more. It's real life here and now. It's being known, being forgiven, being set free from our shame to live free, drawing the world around us to the glory that awaits them in you. So Lord, right now, as we pray as one body, we pray for those in our midst right now whose sign hanging over their head, their sign of shame speaks of regret. For those who struggle with regret, let the church say, you are forgiven. For those who struggle with feeling like failures or feeling guilty, let the church say, you are forgiven. For those who struggle with deep anxieties and deep fears that grip them, let the church say, you are forgiven. For those who struggle with lust, let the church say, you are forgiven. And those who are deep in the grip of addiction, let the church say, you are forgiven. God, 
The Easter promise is that through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we are all forgiven. Brothers and sisters, hear the promise that God forgives you, and we forgive each other, and we are free once again to be naked and unashamed, to be fully human and fully alive and unafraid. In Jesus' name, amen.